Amen. Well, my wife and I, we had a, a laugh together this week when we realized that uh, child dedications this weekend fell on the same day as our message on the Abrahamic covenant sign of circumcision. And so we joked that maybe we should have a Jewish rabbi or moel here in case any of you parents get inspired, but we, we didn't do that. We didn't do that. Um, you know, if some of you kids who are here, if you're kind of wondering, what, what is circumcision? If you don't know, that is Okay. But don't Google it, okay? Ask your, ask your parents. We're not going no, to have any pictures this morning. But on a, a more serious note, this passage that we just had read to us, it is so strange to modern ears. And even for many Christians, it's very confusing. And my hope today is that you'll realize that this chapter is a, a foundation that helps you understand more clearly some of the most important passages in all of God's Word. And to do that, what, what we're going to try and accomplish is two main things. We're going to look at what did this revelation from God mean to Abraham thousands of years ago? What did he understand uh, God to be explaining to him? And then why does it matter for us? Well, what's the relevance for us today? To do that, we're going to have two main points. We're going to look at the covenant clarified and the covenant blessings. So the covenant clarified and the covenant blessings. For our first main point, listen again to verses 1 through 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. I'll set up my covenant covenant between me and you, and I'll multiply you greatly. This passage timestamps Abraham at 99. And so we know it's 13 years after the end of chapter 16, because in the last verse in that chapter, we're told Abram was 86 when Ishmael was born. This seems to be the first time since the covenant ceremony in chapter 15 that we studied that God appeared to Abram. But don't forget the big event that happened between that covenant ceremony at the end of chapter 13, I'm sorry, 15, and then our passage today with so much covenant language. In between, in chapter 16, is the sad account of how Abram and Sarai tried to have the child that God had promised them through the slave woman Hagar. And and we looked at that hot mess last week, that whole fiasco, and God clearly condemned that in multiple ways. With that in mind, though, look at God's first words to Abram in verse 1. I am God Almighty. Live in my presence and be blameless. Live in my presence and be blameless. What what a statement. (laughs) What a way to start, start the conversation with Abram, especially after what had just happened. Imagine how Abram would have heard that. He and Sarai had been far from blameless. They had failed to to live in God's presence precisely because they'd failed to believe that God was almighty. They, They thought they needed to help him to fulfill his promises. Because Abram had taken matters into his own hands, he now had a a son, Ishmael, through Hagar. And as we're going to see next week, at this point in Abram's life, he's not expecting another child. Abram actually desires and and believes that God is going to fulfill his promises to him now through Ishmael. That's the the backdrop for God's revelation to Abram in verse 2, where he tells Abram that he's going to set up a covenant with him and multiply him greatly. Now, this doesn't mean that, that God is creating a second covenant. Instead, Nehemiah 9, 7 through 8 indicates that this is the same covenant as Genesis 15. And so the idea is that God is building onto or clarifying the singular covenant that he's already made with Abram. In verse 4, God went on to tell Abram, Abram, as for me, 
Here's my covenant with you. You will become the father of many nations. I want you to notice that that God is announcing here what he is going to do for Abram. He says, as for me. If you're taking notes, you can underline that. He's saying, this is my end of the covenant, Abram. He then promises to make Abram the father of many nations, which is an expansion of the promise that he gave to Abram in chapter 12, that he'd make him into a great nation. So at first, it was a great nation. Now, God's saying, many nations. Now, to fully appreciate this promise, it helps to know what Abram's name means. Abram's name means exalted father or father of many. And I want you to just let that sink in for a moment. For 85 years of Abram's life, he was called father of many. So every time someone said, hello, Abram, in the morning, they're saying, hello, father of many. Dozens of times every day, he hears this. And instead of many kids, how many did he have? None. He had had no kids. And one preacher pointed out that every time Abram met a stranger and shared his name, in that culture, it would have been so natural to ask the follow-up question, oh, how many kids do you have? Uh, None. (laughs) No, 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 No kids. It would be like calling me the father of bodybuilding. You know, you just look at me and it's like, that's, that's obviously not true. Or maybe, maybe better, you know, if my name was the father of short sermons. You'd ask the follow-up question, how long, are you, how long do you preach? It's like the, the name and the reality, they, they just wouldn't match, right? And so God, he, he doubles down on this enlarged promise by changing Abram's name to Abraham, which means the father of multitudes. So his whole life, he's been called the father of many. And God's like, I, I didn't mess up. No, it's actually going to be more. You're going to be the father of multitudes. He even says that kings are going to come from Abram's line. And that was literally fulfilled as the Midianite and Ishmaelite and Edomite and Israelite nations all descended from Abram. Then in verses 7 through 8, God clarifies that this covenant is not just with Abraham, but it's a permanent or everlasting covenant with his future offspring, as well. And that, in, that covenant includes the promise that all the land of Canaan would be possessed by his descendants and that God himself will be their God. These are the lofty promises that expand on what God had already told Abram. And so in many ways, what he's doing is he's showing that he's planning on being even more generous than Abram anticipated. And as I was reflecting on that this week, I thought, that's been my experience in the Christian life. The longer I've walked with God, I, 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 haven't, I haven't had my expectations lowered. Like the more I get to know who God is, the more I understand who he is and what he's done and what he promises, the more I'm amazed at his generosity. It's like bigger than I realized. He's greater than I understood. His plans are far, far more incredible than I had understood. So that, that's what God's doing here. He's showing a greater generosity than Abraham had even understood before this point. And he's telling Abraham, I'm going to do this. I will do this. This is my part of the covenant. But then there's an important shift in verse 9 when God says to Abraham, as for you, as for you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, they're to keep my covenant. Now, if you're taking notes here, underline as for you. In chapter 15, God stressed that his covenant with Abraham and their relationship, it was based on on faith in his gracious promise. Remember, Abraham, he was declared righteous before God, not because of anything that he'd done, but just because of his faith. And then that was confirmed by the, the covenant ceremony where God alone walked, walked through and did the, the ceremony through the sacrificed animals. 
indicating that, that he was going to, to unconditionally fulfill his promises to Abraham, regardless of what Abraham did. Now, as profound as that truth is, it doesn't mean that God's covenant with his people involves no obligation of them. That's not what it means. Remember how God began his interaction with Abraham in verse 2. He says, I am God Almighty. Live in my presence. Live in my presence and be blameless. This is the fundamental expectation that God had of Abraham in this covenant. God desired Abraham and his descendants to live in his presence or literally walk before me. Before giving any explicit directions or commands, God's heart is clear from the very beginning for his people. He says, I want you to live in my presence. I want, I want you to walk with me and experience me, to enjoy me, to, to reflect me to others. And that's why we have been created. As human beings, that's the only place you can find satisfaction because that, that's what we were designed for. We were designed for God. As the famous confession says, the chief end of man is what? It's to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. I think a helpful a parallel for us, we don't use the, the language of covenant very often in our, in our day, in our society. And we're familiar with consumer relationships. So, you know, if you shop in one store, you have kind of a relationship there. Maybe you have a restaurant that you always go to, classic frozen custard. You might have a consumer relationship with them, but if the price gets too high, eventually you're going to go someplace else. And that's fine. It's just a consumer relationship. But a covenant relationship is different. I like the, the definition that a covenant is a relationship that is so important that you make it legally binding. You make it formal. And in our society today, the, a, a parallel would be marriage. Another one would be kids. Parents, they, they, it's not acceptable in our culture for parents to say, you know, I'm, I'm frustrated with you. I'm out. I'm done with this relationship with you, child. There's a, a covenant there. And, and in that covenant, I want you to think about if a, if a father was, or a mother, if they lived in such a way that that kid knows, no matter what I do, my mom and dad are going to love me. They will love me no matter what. Is that going to make them more or less likely to want to submit to their parents? Well, over time, it makes it clear. Over time, of course, a, a child who knows my parents love me, they're going to be more inclined to listen to their parents than less inclined. And, and God, in this covenant, he makes it so clear. I think this is why he set it up where at least 14 years before he even gives these commands, he's already told us, Abraham's, he's right with me. He's right before me by faith. This doesn't add to his salvation at all. And yet at the same time, just like a parent and a child, there's expectations there. There's expectations for that relationship, and there should be. Now, understanding that, it helps explain that blameless in this context, the word doesn't mean sinless perfection, but it means integrity. It means that God wants us to take our relationship with him seriously and his authority in our lives seriously. And so the, the point I don't want you to miss here is that before even mentioning the sign of the covenant, before giving Abraham any specific task to obey, God emphasizes his desire to have an intimate relationship with him. That that's what God is really after. Now, only after making that clear does God give Abraham the sign of the covenant. And we see this in verses 10 through 11. This is my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you, which you are to keep. Every one of your males must be circumcised. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin, to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. 
I bet some of you in the past have read this and you wondered, why circumcision? Like, what's, what's the deal with this? God could have picked any, anything to mark this covenant. He could have asked Abraham to do anything. So why, why circumcision? Well, verse 13 seems to me to be the closest we get to an explanation from God in this passage as to why he chose the sign. In verse 13, God says, my covenant will be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. So my, my covenant is going to be marked in your flesh as a permanent covenant. God wanted to, to make the sign of the covenant to be unerasable and permanent on Abraham's body and on all his male descendants after them as a constant reminder that they belonged to the Lord, that they were in a unique relationship with him. And so for these males, every day when they would get dressed, or every day when they'd go to the bathroom, just in the normal course of life, they would regularly see this intimate reminder of the covenant. And without going into to details, circumcision is obviously painful and bloody because it requires the cutting off or the removal of the male foreskin and it seems likely to me that that is an aspect of why God chose this sign, because it's normal in Scripture for covenants to be made with blood. Now, the text doesn't say this outright, but it is interesting to me that the sign of the covenant was made on the very place on Abraham's body where he had failed to be blameless when he slept with Hagar. We also know that one of the biggest ways that God wanted his people to live distinct from the nations around them was to reject their rampant sexual immorality and, and the sexual rituals involved in worshiping their false gods. And because of circumcision, a Jewish man or a convert to the one true God of Abraham, they couldn't sin sexually without seeing the very sign of the covenant between himself and God on his reproductive organ. It would be similar to a man who's married with his wedding ring to have an affair you know, he has that ring right there. But the difference, that's a reminder of the covenant, but the difference is a married man, he could take it off. He could try and forget it. With the sign that God gave his people, there's no erasing it. It's a per permanent sign on his body. So perhaps that was part of the reasoning for the sign. On a more positive note, God may have also chosen circumcision as a reminder to Abraham and his descendants that the whole world was going to be blessed through Abraham. Even though Abraham had failed in sleeping with Hagar, we see in this passage that God still promises to give him another son who would finally be the child of promise. Now, we don't know all the specific reasons that God chose circumcision. Some of that is speculation, but there's at least one other aspect that the scriptures make very clear, crystal clear, as to why God chose this sign. And that's because circumcision was symbolic of the spiritual heart surgery that every single human being needs. Romans 30, verse 6, points to this. It says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants, and you will love him with all your heart and all your soul so that you will live. That probably sounds familiar to some of you because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, there's the famous command where God says, Love me with all of your heart and soul and mind and strength. But then at the, the end of Deuteronomy, or near the end, God says, You actually can't do that without my help. You actually need my help. You need me to, to work in your heart, to have the capacity to live that way. Jeremiah 4, it points to the same truth in our human responsibility in it. The prophet says, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, men of Judah and the residents of Jerusalem. Otherwise, my wrath will break out like fire and burn with no one to extinguish it because of your evil deeds. 
these passages and, and others, they make it clear that even in the Old Testament, when someone was born Jewish, when someone was born part of the covenant community of God, that doesn't mean that they were born in a right standing before him. That doesn't mean that they were, they were automatically in, a, in a, a saved relationship with God. Instead, what we see is that God had made a covenant with the people of Israel. He had a unique plan for that nation, but each one of them still needed to be saved by faith. They still needed the grace of God individually. And so circumcision, it was a huge deal because it was the, the sign of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and his descendants. But the sign itself it alluded to the more fundamental issue, and that is the issue of the heart. Someone's heart and their heart's position before God. Now there's one more huge revelation and clarification to the covenant in this passage, and that's at the end in verses 15 through 16. And for the first time there, we see that God specifies that Abraham's promised offspring are gonna come through his wife. This is the first time we hear that in Genesis. So just as God changed Abram's name, he now changes Sarai's name to Sarah, which means princess, probably because princesses go on to bear kings. And this is exactly what God said that he would do through Sarah. He promised to bless her with a child and that kings and nations would come through her. And I think that it's easy for us, those of us who know the story, it's easy to just overlook how massive this would have been. The, that couple, they had been waiting 24 years at this point since finding out that they were going to have a child. Now, 24 hours, that's a long time for a lot of us to wait. They've been waiting 24 years, and that long wait, that's part of what pushed them to, to go to Hagar, to try and have a, a child through another woman and to get, in all, get into all that trouble. And so God, for the first time, is finally explicit here. The promise is going to come through your wife, Abraham. It's going to come through Sarah, your barren wife. That's who I'm going, that's who I'm going to use to give you the son. And so God, he just removes all shadow of doubt. This is going to be a supernatural thing. This cannot happen physically. I, I'm going to do it for you. That's the bombshell breaking news that this passage ends on. And if you want to see Abraham's reaction to it, then hopefully we'll come back next week because we're not going to get into that now. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to shift to our second main point, and look closer at the covenant blessings of this section. The covenant blessings and what those mean for us. And to do that, I want to work through three questions that have been helpful for me. And the first question is, who is the offspring of Abraham? Who's the offspring of Abraham? This passage promises a, a permanent covenant between Abraham and his offspring. And while Jewish people, the ethnic Jews, are of course the physical descendants of Abraham and precious to God, there's a, a big debate among Christians as what's, what is that nation's role in God's plan moving forward? What, what's, what's their role, especially in the end times? And I'm not going to get into that directly, but I do want to point out that Paul, who is himself a Jew, he makes some surprising points about this passage in Galatians and Romans that are very significant and relevant to each one of us. He says in Galatians 3.16, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed, he does not say, and to seeds, as though referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Abraham is saying here that the word offspring in Genesis 17 is singular, and that that means that all the incredible promises to Abraham are ultimately only fulfilled and possessed by Christ. He's the only one who fully 
He's the only one who fulfills those. He's the only one who possesses those. And so no other human being, Jew or Gentile, can, can fully share in those blessings or inherit them apart from Jesus Christ. I like the way that one preacher put it. He said, if you want a piece of the pie in terms of all of the incredible blessings that God gave to Abraham, if you want to really share in the fullness of that, you can't unless you're connected to Christ, unless you're united with Christ. That's why Paul also says in Galatians 3, you know then that those who have faith, these are Abraham's sons. So it's faith. That's what leads to being the offspring of Abraham. He goes on and says, now the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles or non-Jews by faith and proclaim the gospel ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. Paul's saying here, no one is saved by their Jewishness. No one's saved by their, their heredity. Abraham is the father of all those who have faith in the gracious promise of God. And what that means for us today is that no one here is right with God just because your parents were Christians. And for those of you who are kids especially, you, you maybe have gone to church every weekend your whole life, every Sunday. Your parents might love the Lord. That doesn't mean that you're a Christian. If your uncle was a preacher, if your best friends are all Christians, that doesn't make you a Christian yourself. This truth is developed even more in Romans when Paul asks a critical question. He says, is this blessing, which is to be declared righteous apart from works that Abraham had enjoyed, he says, is this blessing, is it, he says, is it only for the circumcised then or is it also for the uncircumcised? He says, is it only for the Jews or do others get to share in it? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that, the right, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. What Paul is saying is that Abraham, he wasn't made right with God by this act, by this act of obedience. He said, no, no, no. He was already right with God. He was right with God long before he ever did this. And so he's using that to prove salvation comes by faith. Faith alone in Christ is not, not a part of our efforts at all. But that doesn't mean that this was unimportant. He says this is a sign. This was a sign of the covenant that, that was already established between him and God, that, that he had entered into by faith. And so a parallel for us in the new covenant is baptism. A baptism is not something that saves you. Just going underwater doesn't wash away your sins. And yet baptism is very important because it, it's the, the initial act, the initial covenant sign that believers go through to say, I have been changed by Christ. I've been united with his death and his resurrection. So the baptism doesn't say, but it's a, it's a symbol of the salvation that Christians have experienced. And so what that means then is that the ultimate offspring of Abraham, the ones who, who actually share in the fullness of the blessings that are promised to Abraham, those individuals are the ones who've been united to Christ by faith. Jew or Gentile, man or, man or woman, boy or girl, from every tongue and tribe and nation. Those are the true offspring of Abraham. Now here's the next question. What about the land? What about the, the land that Abraham's descendants are promised to possess forever? In Genesis 17, God tells Abraham that his descendants will, will all have the land of Canaan. 
Now, the Jews possessed this land temporarily during the reign of King Solomon, but they've not consistently had ownership of it since then. Even today, they don't, they don't have full possession of the land, as remarkable as it is that they've come back together as a nation. Now, there are a few different views Christians have on, on you know, what will happen to the land of Israel in the future. But I want you to notice what Paul makes clear in Romans 4 while he's interpreting Genesis 17. While he's interpreting Genesis 17, he says, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through faith, but through the righteousness that comes. Or I'm sorry, it was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. Now notice as he's talking, this is right after he was talking about the promise of offspring to Abraham in Genesis 17. Then he switches and says, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world. He doesn't say anything about Canaan. He says the world. That's interesting. Paul's not contradicting the promise that God made to Abraham in, G- in Genesis 17. Instead, he's doing exactly what God did in Genesis 17. He's expanding the promise. He's showing a greater generosity that God has planned for his people. Now think about what Jesus said in the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the meek, for they'll inherit the land of Canaan. He said, for they'll inherit the earth. They'll, they'll inherit the world. Now, some believe this will happen in a literal millennial reign of Christ on this earth. Others think that it refers to the new heavens and the new earth. But either way, Romans 4 indicates that the promise that God made to Abraham, it not only remains in effect, it's actually expanded. It's actually broader than the original promise. Now, as awesome as these promises are, as as big as they are, when you step back and think about it, the final question I want you to consider is what is the greatest of the covenant blessings? What's the greatest of the covenant blessings in this passage? Look again at Genesis 17, verse 8 for the answer. And to you and your future offspring, I'll give the land where you're residing, all the land of Canaan as a permanent possession, and I will be their God. I will be their God. This is the heart of the covenant. This is the ultimate promise of the covenant. See, the the greatest blessing of being in a covenant relationship with God, it's not just that your sins can be forgiven, as incredible as that is. It's not just the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, of of reigning with Christ, as wonderful as that is, but the, the fundamental promise is that you can know God and be known by him. You can be in a relationship with him. He, he will claim you as his own. He'll proudly recognize you as, as his own people. This, this phrase, I'll be their God, it comes up again and again in key passages throughout the Bible. God, he makes that statement when describing the temple to the Israelites at Sinai. David, he, he quotes that in describing God's faithfulness to Israel uh, after God promised that, that he was going to have a descendant who was going to rule forever. This comes up over and over again. It's a big theme in Ezekiel where, where the people of God, they were in exile. And God's saying, I'll be your God. I still have a plan for you. I'm the one who's going to cleanse you from your idolatry. And then in, in Jeremiah, in the famous prophecy of the new covenant, God told him there, I'll be your God. I'll be your God. We see this in key places throughout Scripture. It's mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament before fi- making a final climactic appearance in Revelation 21.3 where the apostle John, when describing the eternal kingdom of heaven, he says, then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. 
This I will be their God language introduced in Genesis 17 is covenant language, and it's very similar to the, the language we use in marriages. When I got married, I looked my wife in the eye, and I said, I take you, Agatha, to be my wife. I will be your husband. I'll be your husband. I'm committing, I'm committing the rest of my life to you. That's the type of language that's going on here. In many ways, it's like God saying, Abraham, put on, put on the ring. Put on the sign of the covenant that we have together. This shows God his heart. Again, it's, it's for an intimate relationship with us. Not superficial, but an intimate relationship. He was committing himself here, not just to Abraham, but to all those with, with faith like him afterwards. And part of, the reasons why, part of the reason why this is so amazing is that since Adam and, Adam and Eve sinned for human beings, we have rejected a relationship with God. We have, we have chosen that we'd rather have control of our lives. We'd rather live independently of him than to live in the presence of God. No human beings deserve to, to walk with God or for God to graciously claim them, claim them as, as his own people. And this couldn't be more obvious than in Genesis 16, where Abraham and, and Sarah, they dishonored God and treated Hagar so cruelly. Now, did, Abraham, did Abraham, did he deserve to have his name changed to Abraham? Did, did Sarai deserve to have her name changed to Sarah? <laughs> no, <laughs> of course not. And that, that's the point. You know, the Bible goes out of its way over and over to highlight that, that the people of God, they're not saved because they're morally superior to others. It's not because we've earned our position before God. It's actually the exact opposite. We're saved by grace. That means that, that forgiveness in a relationship with God, it's never deserved. It's only possible because of the cross. You see, at the cross, Jesus, the Son of God, he was cut off from God the Father. He was cut off from the Father because of our sin and rebellion. Jesus bled and he suffered more than we can fully fathom, and he did all of that. He was cut off like that so that we could be welcomed in. He experienced death so that we could experience life. He was cut off so that we could be brought into a perfect relationship, a covenant relationship with him. That's why Jesus, the night before he died, he instituted the Lord's Supper or communion. And that's one of the, the two signs along with baptism, the ongoing sign of the new covenant. And he did that by saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And this, this covenant, this is the fulfillment of, of all the other major covenants. It's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. And I'm establishing it with my blood. I'm pouring out my blood for you. And Jesus poured out his blood. He poured out his blood on the cross for you so that his love could be poured out on you instead of God's wrath. He died to provide the two things necessary for sinners like you and me to be in a relationship with God. The first thing is that our sins have to be forgiven. You, you have to have your sins forgiven to be in a relationship with the Holy God. And, and that's what Jesus accomplished with his death. But secondly, we also need our hearts to be changed. Theoretically, you could imagine your sins being forgiven, but if you don't actually desire God, if you desire to live independently of him, how are you going to be in a relationship with him? We need our hearts to be changed. We need to, to prefer walking with God than to, to living our own way. Galatians 6, 15, it explains that because of the cross, because of the new covenant, circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. That would have been a radical statement to the Jews. He said, circumcision and uncircumcision means nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. 
That's what matters. There has, there has to be a new creation internally. It's like Jesus said, unless you're born again, you'll never see the kingdom of God. We need to be made new and changed. In other words, we need our hearts to be circumcised. To become a Christian, you need God to do something to you you cannot do for yourself. You can't just go to church. There's no box just to check. You need God to change your heart. Romans 2 puts it this way. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the Spirit, not by the written code. It's not based on laws you jump through. You need the Holy Spirit of God to change your heart. You need God to ultimately save you. Colossians 2 calls this the circumcision of Christ, and, then, and it's clear that it's received only by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ for you on the cross. Do you believe that? Do you believe that's how you're right with God? Or do you believe that it's Jesus is good, but it's also my baptism? Or Jesus is good, but it's also going to church. It's also trying to be a good person. See, the Bible doesn't teach that we're saved by Jesus plus our good works. Over and over, it's so clear. We're saved by Christ alone. And if you're trusting in your good works, the Bible's clear warning for you is you're not heading towards heaven. You're actually heading towards hell. You're relying on yourself and saying what Christ did isn't necessary. The Son of God dying in my place, I don't need that. If you've never realized that Jesus was cut off so that you could be forgiven and cut off so that you could be changed and have your heart circumcised, then nothing could be more important for you than to figure out, is what I'm saying true? Is this actually what the Bible teaches? And if it is, if this is what God teaches, then you need to turn and you need to cry out to him and ask him to save you. Ask him to change you. Now for our practical application, to close though, for, for those of you who know the Lord, I want to hone in on what seems to be the main, pa- main point of this passage to the original audience. And I think that, that is that we should take the covenant obligations of God seriously. Or in other words, for us as Christians, we should take the commands of God seriously. Now again, keep in mind, when God appeared to Abraham in this chapter and spoke these words to him, Abraham had already been declared righteous at least 14 years before. The sign of the covenant had nothing to do with making Abraham righteous before God, but it had everything to do with expressing his faith and and for him learning to walk righteously before God. And the same is true for us today. Obeying God's commands, that is never what saves you. But genuine salvation, real salvation, where someone has turned to Christ in faith, It always leads to someone's heart being changed by the Holy Spirit. And so that will lead to a new desire to obey God that you didn't have before. You'll want to follow God. You'll want to to submit to him. It doesn't mean that it will be easy, but there's this new desire there to live with him instead of independently of him. It's not a desire to just avoid guilt or to feel superior to others, but, but you see that obedience, that's the path to actually experiencing God more. The obedience of faith, that's the way that that we can become more like our Savior. And so if you're a Christian, do you take the commands of God seriously? If you you are a Christian, have you been baptized? Baptism is not what saves you. But that's one of the the first steps. It's the first thing that God gives to declare. I I am a Christian. God has changed me. I know some people at times, they've been afraid to get baptized because they're afraid to get up and share their testimony. And I want to be clear, we, as a church, if someone wants to be baptized, Shrine and I, uh, as pastors, we like to either meet with them. Usually we have them write out their testimony just because we want to make sure people really understand the gospel. But to get baptized, you don't have to share your testimony. The Bible doesn't command that. You do have to get baptized, though. 
You do have to get baptized. If you, if you want to, to say that you're a follower of Christ, do you take his commands seriously? If you're a Christian, do you take the, the commands to be in, in fellowship with other believers seriously and to use your spiritual gifts to help build up the church? Are you committed to, to growing in sexual purity and generosity? And, and are you committed to being involved in gospel ministry? Now, for those of you who are, are Christian parents, we got a great reminder here this morning that, that God, he, he wants us to raise our kids to follow him. And have you owned that responsibility to teach your kids about God, to model the, the gospel for them? Good works, while they never produce salvation, true salvation, becoming a, a new creation by faith, it will always produce a desire to obey God. It will always pr- produce a desire to live in his presence. And we understand that that happens more and more as we obey him. Let's go ahead and, and close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. Lord, we thank you that, that all of it, even the, the parts that we have to work harder, dig a little bit deeper, thank you that all of it is relevant for our lives. And Lord, if there's anyone here, Lord, who's never understood their need for you, the, the need that we all have for salvation in Christ, Lord, help them to see, help them to see their need. Help them to see your heart to save. And for the rest of us, Lord, I, I pray that, that we would be a church, that we would be people who are more and more excited to obey you wholeheartedly, that we would really believe that you know better for our lives than we do for ourselves. So we ask for you to, to take these truths and to work in each one of us. I trust you to do that again in your great and precious name, Jesus. Amen.